to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's Privacy and Security Podcast for the American Bar Association. This is your host, Jordan Fisher from Beckage Law, and I'm excited to be talking today to Daniel Gary. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you for the invitation, and it's a pleasure and privilege to be speaking today. Um, It's the end of the year, so I'm pretty excited, and going into 2021 should be interesting times. Yes, we're certainly ending 2020 with a bang, that is for sure. Um, So, Daniel, if you could just go ahead and introduce yourself to everyone, um, where you're currently affiliated with, um, that would be great. Yeah, of course. Um, I am currently a neutral with JAMS, where I focus on cybersecurity, smart contracts, technology, and general run-of-the-mill arbitration and mediation topics um, of all types and sizes, both domestic and international. I also am the co-founder of Long Forensics, a global legal engineering firm, and I'm an adjunct professor of law at Rutgers School of Law in Cybersecurity and Cyber Warfare among other things. So that's so just nutshell. doing a few things. <laughs> yeah, just a, a few things. And um, yeah, and a, and a handful of situations, I, I practice law and cybersecurity and cyber warfare and privacy um, for a select small set of clients. That's amazing. You really span the breadth of what it is, data privacy, security, technology. So I'd love to hear sort of what was your journey to this area of practice? It's definitely an area that's growing in the legal field, but I'm curious sort of how you got into this. I love the idea that you have like a legal engineering company. I think that's where this this practice is going, but I'd love to hear about your journey to this area of law. I mean, I, I think, I, yeah, certainly non-traditional. I built and sold a several technology startups and etc. I've had uh, five companies that I've co-founded and exited. I'm, Law and Forensics is my sixth legal engineering firm. I mean, they were in other fields as well. Um, I picked up a law degree. I've written, I don't know, I ended up writing and teaching and practicing law. And then I became one of the youngest special masters appointed in the United States about 15 years ago. And um just been doing it ever since yeah i mean from there i mean i still work actively in uh, technology programming i just uh, wrote and building out some um, using amazon's quantum database ledger i'm building out some web-based technologies i last couple years filed for five patents four or five patents on some advanced forensic technologies i've built and i also actively work in the legal space so i really um, you know, I guess, I mean, I run a legal engineering firm, so we also work with FDK, X-Waves, and Case on a daily basis um, and doing some advanced forensics threat analysis. And I have a really a fantastic team that allows me the luxury of being able to do so many different things. I'm very fortunate to work with such smart and brilliant people and have such great colleagues at JAMS as well. So I feel lucky on a daily basis. Yeah, and I find that a lot of people in this space um, sort of come to it these untraditional paths. You know, um, I often like to remind um, young practitioners that 
data privacy and security wasn't even taught at law schools until recently. Um, and that this is such a new area. So I think it's pretty common to have taken that non-traditional path into this practice. So, so I'm curious from your perspective, and I know this is a very broad question, um, uh, and you know, we were joking earlier that we could talk on these topics for hours, but in your experience, having been in this field for so many years, you know, what has become the role of law in the development and evolution of technology? You know, in some ways, I feel like technology has sort of broken some law and really pushed beyond it. But from your perspective, how have these two fields really meshed and merged um, in the past decade plus that you've been working in this field? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could go back 20. I mean, it goes back all, you know, technology's always been involved in, in law, but what's really happening is technology has become so much more integrated into the fabric of our society, ranging from the Google Home and the Alexa and the Ring, the Amazon doorbell, or it's become so integrated, you know, whether it's your vacuum or your car, all the way to your workplace working from home. And as technology has become so much more closely connected and integrated, um, you know, it's it's certainly enmeshed itself into, you know, starting, you know, 15 years ago, the exploding batteries and laptops to the more germane, you know, hacking of people's doorbells and speaking to kids and tort law. So it really runs the gambit now of all facets of law are impacted by technology in some fashion and whether it's cybersecurity and making sure that, you know, as lawyers that you're following your ethical duties of <laughs> of making sure you're have securing your client's information and representing them effectively to your clients dealing with a panoply of legal issues that technology just no is, isn't isn't stopping i mean it's just it's become so integrated right i mean whether it's biometrics people think oh well work you know how can an fl you know fair labor standards act involve technology but you have bio encryption and people's time cards and you know is it properly operating and collecting information to the e-discovery area where you have you know i sit as a special master and there's you know, requests for the Google Cloud and there's personal Google accounts and geofencing and, you know, all of these complex ideas that govern where personal information exists and is generated. And so as this, it's almost, almost, what you would call immersion. Uh, um, it's sort of taken over. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's not even taken over. It's just, be, it's one in the same almost, right? I mean, you bring your phone to work and you use your phone to talk to your wife or your kids or your partner about chores and laundry. And then you use it to talk to your business partners about cases and litigation. And then you use it to book and buy your holiday gifts. And then you may use it to schedule the cleaners. And then you may use it to have a video conference with your family. And then you may use it to check the alarms in your house and start your car. Right. And that's right. just one device, right? And every one of those areas I'm talking about, there's a litany of potential legal issues. So it's sort of the role of law has become almost fully enmeshed into technology in all areas, right? Antitrust, torts, contracts, breach of contracts, insurance claims. I mean, I hear all sorts of, I mean, I was just a sole arbitrator in a case where 
the raid servers and the IT support contracts and with the city and losing all this data and breach of, so it was a breach of contract, but it was a failure of technology mm-hmm. you know, or, or TCPA or anything else, right? So, I mean, the rule of law, and that's just in the United States, the rule of law becomes, you know, when we're working as a legal engineering firm or even as an arbitrator around privacy issues or and even international and international arbitration, the rule of law and technology has just become so much more complicated, especially when you start dealing with the data pieces of it. And what I wonder those- from your perspective, too, I mean, like picking up on that theme, has the law helped to drive some of that technological conversation or has it been technology and law trying to play catch up? Um, you know, I think this is a very uh, people have very varying thoughts on this, but generally law is behind. And so I'm wondering, you know, we have all these, like every, every device that you just named creates a ton of data. And right now we're sitting here and we're saying what laws can apply to move technology where we as a society want them to. And do we have the laws or is the technology driving the legal analysis? I'm sort of wondering from your perspective, which is driving which? Well, I mean, it depends where in the world you live in some sense. GDPR in some sense is driving a lot. Uh, maybe arguably it came in 2018. It's, you know, probably the result of, I mean, I guess largely technology is ahead of the law. Mm-hmm. Everywhere in the world, the, the law is responding obviously in different ways and we're integrating and operating differently. And it, 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 it presents a complex set of challenges because different jurisdictions, different cultural operations all have a different take on, let's just privacy is just one construct, right? That in itself around the world, you have Singapore Data Protection Act, the Dubai Data Protection Act, you have the GDPR, and even, the, you know, that varies by country for enforcement and actions and compliance. Then you have the United States with CCPA, and then you have Canada with their own Privacy Act and Mexico with their laws. So, I mean, it, it, it's so it's become so complicated for corporations operating just dealing with privacy. I mean, it's become right. a Privacy has become its own subset of, you know, and e-discovery has, what, $20 billion. I mean, each one of these are huge marketplaces and huge areas of just law in itself, right? There's the Sedona Conference, which I think has thousands of members, all just focusing really on, you know, well, e-discovery and other areas. I mean, they also have privacy, but it certainly started in e-discovery. And then you have privacy. The IAPP has, what, 60,000 members last I checked. I don't know, some crazy, you know, and these are their just single areas of technology influencing the law. Right, right. And I think, too, you just touched on a key challenge we see in the law right now is that the law has inherent borders and jurisdictions, but increasingly technology doesn't see those borders. And it's very often, you know, Cyber breaches, I can't name a cyber breach recently that we've heard of that's only been within one U.S. state, right? It's only been within one jurisdiction. And that's a real challenge when, like you said, we're seeing these differing ways of approaching technology, privacy, security across these different jurisdictions. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at uh, the, you know, you know, the, you know, cyber in itself, right, in a breach, right? You might you might be a U.S. based corporation that's operating 
you know, in 30 jurisdictions, one of them so happens to be Vietnam, located in the side China Sea for hacking. Mm-hmm. One of the most, and you may have a, you know, Chinese hackers actively target Vietnam companies. You may have a wholly owned affiliate subsidiary manufacturing on in Vietnam. They're able to enter through your facilities in Vietnam and then jump into, let's say, your worldwide network, hitting you in Europe and hitting you in the United States, creating a global set of issues. And then the question becomes disclosure and other things of who do you have to disclose to, you know, are you violating X, Y, and Z country and so on and so forth, right? I mean just and that could all be perpetrated by you know chinese are very active in hacking different countries in the south chinese sea including vietnam and mm-hmm. so you could you know and that's just one every country is you know and that's just the country actors and you've got private actors and pseudo state actors and all of these come into play so then how do you manage privacy notifications for a hack that came through vietnam and you're not sure if it impacted your U.S. data sets, but you believe it did touch it and access it, but you're not sure if it exfiltrated it. And then you have your European counterparts and in Europe, under Europe, you're, you have mandatory disclosure notices. So you make, you know, who do you tell first and how do you tell them? Right. And that's just one small possible situation. And, and you know, I often mediate and try to help parties, you know, the, are dealing with these types of claims and issues you know as a mediation mediator i'll occasionally mediate these types of disputes like because they may bring in a forensic firm and they think they're retaining them to do the incident response but they believe they've been retained by the law firm simply to say if data has been exfiltrated or not right and so you've got you know a conflict that arises there so so on and so forth so you know, those are just some of the issues that come. And my head is spinning just hearing you talk about it. And I sit in this space, so I can't even imagine what so many businesses are facing and that fragmentation and sort of the approach. So I'm wondering, Daniel, from your perspective, having seen what you've seen and sort of the work that you currently work in, what does 2021 look like? You know, where do we go from here? How can we in the law maybe provide some clarity in this space? Because I think it's only going to get more and more confusing as we have more devices connecting to the internet. You know, you mentioned a number of the just IoT devices that can be sitting around us as we even have these conversations. You know, where do we go from here? Is there, and how do we catch up? (laughs) Yeah, well, I think in 2021, one of the real areas of complication will be you know, lawyers coined this term, I don't know if it's good or not, uh, smart contracts sitting on a blockchain. Right. Um, and that that that's such a loaded concept because the smart contract itself is really a self-executing set of code. It's actually code written into lines of code. So I think one of the areas lawyers are going to be struggling with is we make an agreement, we have a, you know, a binding letter of intent, and then we they implement a set of lines of code and that's your code in the agreements. And so how there's going to be, you know, there's a handful of companies I think that can actually analyze smart contracts to understand what the issues and risks are from a code perspective and communicate that to lawyers. So I think that's going to be a huge area where lawyers are going to be working. I mean, there's only one real company, there's a handful, but, and chain.ai has this like smart contract code review tool set mm-hmm. 
and others that will translate that software code into risk and code. And lawyers are going to be confronting this new reality where, you know, their clients are basically writing software code for self-executing agreements where dispute resolution and other things are already codified. Right. Writing it out to this thing called a blockchain or quantum database if you're on Amazon or whatever it is, an immutable sort of mechanism, whether it's distributed or not, um, to many nodes, creating even further complexity to any legal issues and the veracity of the data. And I think, you know, I, I wrote the rules for uh, with Kim Taylor at Jams uh, with Bob input from, you know, the luminaries at Jams that have written many and given input on many codas of um, our, you know, arbitration. We Jams put out a new set of rules for actually resolving disputes that come off the blockchain. And I think this blockchain smart contract starting in 2021, picking up speed, 2022, 2023 are going to create whole new areas of law mm-hmm. and opportunities for lawyers. And how do lawyers get ahead of this? I mean, this is one of these loaded questions, right? Where I get, I teach, right? And they say, well, how do you get into privacy? And I say, go serve in the military. And they're like, we're not, (laughs) I'm being somewhat sarcastic, but, you know, to get hands-on, there's nothing like hands-on experience being a cyber operator or running a forensic investigation and understanding the complexities and nuances and then looking at it from the legal side of the house. But I think at a practical level, if you want to get in the field, you know, go to some nonprofits, say, hey, look, I'll give my time and services for free to help you guys develop a privacy program to help you. Right. That hands-on experience is so key. It really is. Because if you're working with networks, if you're understanding how they interact, that's going to be so valuable with that legal mind on top of it. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah. And I think you start by going to nonprofit, then getting some books out and understanding some basic things. I think a lot of lawyers want to end up where I'm at. And I tell them, you know, you don't have to end up where I'm at to do what I do. What you need to know how to do is how to ask the right questions and understand the answers. Right. And a lot, you know, technology changes at such a fast rate and pace, right? I mean, I I have a very focused area of subset of knowledge and expertise in technology around software development and around, you know, certain subfields of technology. But the truth is, is that to really be a good lawyer, knowing how to ask the right questions, um, you know, and engage and think about things is, is way more powerful, I think. You know, Mortimer Adler, um, who, you know, passed was, you know, the youngest dean at University of Chicago, I believe, and professor at Columbia and elsewhere. And, you know, he he firmly espoused the belief of learning. You know, he wrote a book, How to Read a Book, <laughs> right? And I mean, that critical skills of how to analyze something and think about things and evaluate and think and then ask the right questions is really where lawyers that want to go into privacy and technology are going to come out ahead. Um, I think it's really, really where you can, you know, get your feet wet. And obviously you need to know the nomenclature and the technology terms, but I mean, how to read a book, you know, while it's a, it's a framework that provides you on how to understand something. So you take that framework and you apply it to reading a book about privacy or technology or systems, and you learn how to ask the right questions. But I mean, 
you know, but you also need to understand the basics of law contract. You know, I, I arbitrate TS, you know, TS, you know, all sorts of just vanilla TCPA sort of disputes and other things as an arbitrator, understanding the fundamentals of the law are as important as understanding how an auto dialer works. Right. So it's really, you gotta, you know, but so I think lawyers that want to get in the field, you know, get a credential or two that helps, but really learning how to ask the right questions and get that experience and um, going from there. I mean, there's no magic bullet, so to speak. It's just taking the leap and, you know, learning to ask the questions and learn new things. I think the cool thing about this area is that you always will be learning. You'll always be. You never get bored. That is for sure. That's what I always say to people. (laughs) I mean, you Um, can just look at solar winds, which I'm sure will plague us for the next six to nine months. And, you know, at a minimum, and, and that's one hack, right? There's a half a dozen or dozen hacks that have happened the last two weeks, right? Yeah. I mean, and I mean, some of them are bigger than others. And how do you manage that risk and execute that risk is equally important. And I love that asking the right questions, because I think it's also being inquisitive enough to ask the right questions um and understanding how this all interrelates i mean one of the challenges we're going to see you know you just mentioned using blockchain for smart contracting well my mind immediately goes to the fact that how do we handle privacy rights and privacy within blockchain when it's immutable right and we have this right to deletion under gdpr can those worlds merge together how do we address those and thinking about sort of the spider web impact of all these new technologies um, staying on top of that is challenging, but I think it's very invigorating and it's something that um, asking the right questions is a very good way to approach this practice of law. That is very true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, you make an excellent point, right? I mean, the right to be forgotten is juxtaposed to the idea that something's immutable and distributed to everywhere, right? So I download a copy of the database, right? Mm-hmm. And um, how does that work? Exactly. Uh, and how do those two worlds exist and actually operate together i think that's a that's a question and we're going to see that get fleshed out a lot more as we have these technologies that are using blockchain or blockchain like um sort of architecting those systems it's going to be really interesting to see how that interplays together yeah so understanding how to ask those questions and then understand the the answers right exactly Um, Well, Daniel, I really appreciate you coming on today. I think it's so fascinating the way that you've sort of taken your journey into this technology, privacy, um, cybersecurity area. Um, I want to end with one final question for you. Um, I like to ask all of my guests this, um, but is there any recent security privacy technology book that you've read that you could recommend to the audience? Or I guess any resource, since there's a lot of resources beyond books in this space that we operate in. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, (laughs) this may sound, um, you know, ridiculous, but I think understand, you know, there's just understanding the basics. I mean, I think Carnegie and Ritchie in C, um, you know, it's how to program in C. Yes. But it's it's called C programming language. It's the second edition. It's published by Kernigan and Ritchie. It's a great, you know, how to program in C. It's it's C is no longer used widely. C sharp .net VB whatever. I think that's a great one. And I think you know another fascinating book that I read um, that I thought was definitely 
worth reading at some level was, um, I think it was Gary Korn um, wrote an article, or several articles on uh, sovereignty in the age of cyber. Mm. Uh, was another great article I just read recently. And then another great is National Security Law and the Constitution is a great yes. book. Very relevant to our times right now, for sure. So Yeah, and, and they, it's got a great survey um, of what's going on. And then, I mean, I'm trying to think. Sorry, I, I, I read a lot, so I apologize. <laughs> I'm just no, I love this. And I always love hearing what other people are reading because I think it's a great introduction for listeners to sort of delve into these topics. So really appreciate that. Um, so Daniel, again, really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Um, thank you so much for all of this information um, and look forward to continuing the conversation in the future. Yeah, definitely. I'm just trying, I'm trying to remember this book I just read. <laughs> I think it's algorithms. It's called Algorithms at War. Yes, I've heard of that. That is a book. Yes. <laughs> and I think it's, I can't remember. I think it's the Algorithms of War. I don't know if it, it was it was a book or an article with a, was pretty interesting as well. But I mean, and then there's, you know, just, I think just the basic books, how to read a book by Mortimer Adler is very useful. Well, that's awesome advice for our listeners. So thanks, Daniel, for coming on. Really appreciate it. Um, and looking forward to, to chatting again real soon. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you, the ABA as well. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.